0: This is the In Focus podcast from The Hindu. Hello and welcome to The Hindu's In Focus podcast with me, Amit Barua, your host for this episode. Everything that can go wrong with a country is in full play in Sri Lanka. Anger and violence at food and fuel shortages, power cuts, collapsing purchasing power. And above all, a demand for the ruling Rajapakse clan to quit the island nation's politics is growing. President Gotabaya Rajapakse has sacrificed his brother Mahinda to cling on to power as the go, gota, go cries in the streets of Sri Lanka continue to be heard. In desperation, the United National Party leader, Ranil Vikramasinghe, has been appointed Prime Minister in place of Mahinda Rajapakse. Can this six-time Prime Minister get Sri Lanka out of his current economic and political mess? Can the President continue in office? Is Mr. Vikram Singhye serious about abolishing the Executive Presidency in Sri Lanka, which many believe lies at the root of the country's problems? To discuss these issues, I am joined from Colombo by Dr. Patya Soti Sarvanamuttu, Executive Director of the Centre for Policy Alternatives. Welcome to In Focus, Dr. Sarvanamuttu. Thank you. My first question to you, Dr. Sarvanamuttu, is there an end game in sight in Sri Lanka? Well, now that the
1: interim prime minister has been appointed and Parliament meets tomorrow, um, he's been appointed. He says on the basis that he has to save the economy. He's also included some political reform. So the question is as to whether, since Ranil Wickremesinghe is the only member of the United National Party in Parliament as to whether his government can command the confidence of the House. So far, other political parties have said, yes, they will support him on the economy, but he must also continue to pursue the political reform agenda. So I think what will happen is is that there will be a bill, a constitutional amendment that will be introduced, which will clip some of the powers of the president and then there will be discussion in terms of the abolition of the executive presidency and of Gothabe Rajapaksa going. If there isn't any of that, then the protests in the street will have to intensify. In all probability, it will intensify. And that whole question of political stability that the appointment of an interim government seems to have obtained will fall apart.
0: Dr. Saru, it seems a little strange that we are talking about political reform at a time where there's an intense economic crisis. I do understand the two are linked, but don't you think the focus should simply be on the economy and perhaps political reform comes a step later? Well, I mean, as you said, the two are linked. It is a crisis
1: of governance. It's the ineptitude of the current government, their lack of capacity to understand the economy and the bad policies that they have implemented that have led to this. Also, the point is about corruption. The message of the street is is that the Rajpaksas have robbed the country, left, right, and center, and that this is the opportunity to make sure that they leave politics and that the process of accountability for stealing that money uh, is brought into effect. So, that you know, the people in the street don't see things too differently. Yes, the immediate concern, of course, is getting the bridging finance before we can get the agreement with the IMF. But people feel that, look, it's a crisis of an entire system and one must not lose sight of that.
0: And what is your sense, uh, as you mentioned, that Ranil Vikramsinger is the only member, only MP from the United National Party, uh, one time a very formidable force uh, in Sri Lanka's politics. I mean, he is a very experienced politician. Can he sort of uh, bring all his experience to bear uh, to the table so that Sri Lanka is, in a sense, out of this economic mess, gets the bridging finance you're talking about, and move towards an agreement with the IMF?
1: Well, so far, as I said earlier, most parties in parliament have pledged him support with regard to the economy. And therefore, he will be able to overcome any motion of no confidence that is passed in him and his government. However, as I said, the opposition political party is to have the political reform agenda, and any kind of silence or disregard of that agenda will lead to problems. So, yes, he is very experienced. He has dealt with these questions on a much more limited basis, of course, before, he has a good international profile. But this is indeed the challenge of his career to get this country out of the descent into the direst economic circumstances imaginable.
0: Dr. So, Saranutu, taking a step back for our listeners, you know, how do you think Sri Lanka got into this horrible mess in the first place?
1: Well, I think this is largely because, like in Greece, for example, our governments have spent and promised to spend much more than they have ever earned. But this particular crisis, this particular crisis has been brought about by the rajapaksas their profligacy in power, their borrowing and then borrowing again to repay the interest on what they have originally borrowed, their pursuit of vanity projects. And then when this government was elected, when he became president in 2019, Gotabe Rajpaksa restricted the tax base, and that cost the Treasury millions. Then he decided to move towards organic agriculture overnight, which caused serious disruptions. Then he decided that he would pay the bondholders and dip into the foreign reserves in order to do that. And as a consequence, we didn't have foreign exchange, we don't have foreign exchange to pay for the basic essentials for our population, like food and fuel, you know. So the lack of capacity to understand economics, indeed, lack of capacity to understand governance in itself, has been at the heart of it, and responsibility, therefore, lies at the feet of the masses.
0: You know, you did mention about the IMF earlier. You know, some Sri Lankan commentators uh, mentioned Dr. Sarvanamuttu that, uh, you know, uh, Sri Lanka's very liberal uh West-leaning governance, uh, economic reform, that, in a sense, really is at the base of the crisis, of course, uh, you know, added to by the crisis of governance that you referred to and, you know, and the knee-jerk kind of decisions that were taken. Would you agree with uh, such uh, the Sri Lankan analysts who believe that this liberal model is uh, at the root of the problem, in a sense?
1: No, not really. I think at the root of the problem, when you think about it from independence onwards, I mean, we've had a very strong welfare state. We have free education, free health, but we've gone further than that. Every single political party at an election promises to employ another 10,000 people in public service. As a consequence, we have 1.5 million people on the public service payroll for a country with a population of 22 million. Then we have state-owned enterprises that are running at a, a loss, a horrendous loss of millions every day. So it's not just the, the the point about a sort of neoliberal outlook as far as our economic policy has been concerned. It's been a dis an abuse, if you like, of those
0: economic policies
1: that has led us to this situation.
0: Right. So how do you now look? at uh, you know key key countries in the region let's begin with china uh, you know a lot has been uh, said about uh, sri lanka's relationship with china how do you think uh, the chinese perceive this crisis and what is your sense will they be coming to sri lanka's help in its hour of need
1: well i mean the exposure of sri lanka to chinese loans is something like 10% and that is the same figure for japan when Sri Lanka announced it was going to the IMF, the Chinese weren't too keen about that because there is always the possibility, and I think this would happen, that all creditors will have to take the same amount of the haircut, as it were. So the Chinese have not been willing to restructure uh, Sri Lankan debt, but hopefully they will come online because the gravity of the problem is so great, you know. So. Whilst they, first of all, distance themselves uh, from coming into giving Sri Lanka assistance, they are slowly, I think, perhaps coming on board and recognizing that Sri
0: Lanka does need help as far as bridging finance is concerned. So, let's come to India now, um, Dr. Sarvanamuttu, a country with which uh, Sri Lanka has had a very difficult relationship in the past. What is your sense? Uh, does, un- does India understand the gravity of the situation in Sri Lanka? And do you think it will go the extra mile in helping Sri Lanka in what is perhaps, uh, you know, one of the most serious crises your country has ever faced?
1: Well, I mean, so far, it has been India who has come to our rescue, in a sense, and provided us with uh, both swaps and loans and all of that to tide us over. And we're expecting even more assistance from India. I think the relationship with India is so long, it's so intimate, it's so much of a love-hate relationship that we always recognize that in the last resort, India is the one who will bail us out if any bailing out is going to happen. And so in that respect, one of the things that this crisis has done is to reiterate and reconfirm the pivotal role of India as far as sri lanka is concerned
0: and uh, uh, you know just uh, taking uh, another step back and you know seeing the ethnic relations uh, in sri lanka and uh, we do see a lot of protests uh, from all over the island in a sense against the current economic crisis and the governance of the rajapaksa clan do you think that this is a unifying moment for sri lanka as well Oh yes,
1: it is a unifying moment to Sri Lanka in that the popular protests, the popular demonstrations have involved Sri Lankans from all communities, from all ethnic communities, all religious communities, and indeed all classes. So there is that unity that has been forged out of the desperation
0: and the calamitous situation that the rulers have brought us into. And do you think this is likely to endure? Because uh, we do know that the underlying ethnic issues, uh, you know, that lie below the surface in a sense right now, they could come to the fore once again?
1: Well, I mean, in terms of the remedial action, in terms of uh, bringing a resolution to the national question and all of that, I think that will come somewhere into the future in that the immediate economic issues and the question of the abolition of the presidency and of Raj Rajapaksa and the rest of the Rajapaks is leaving politics and the corruption, the need for accountability for their misdeeds. I think once all of that is done, and we move towards more whole-scale constitutional reform, the possibilities of looking again at a political resolution of the conflict, which has been pending since the military victory against the Tigers in 2009, that could well be possible.
0: And what is your sense, you know, you, you have really watched uh, the Sri Lankan political scene over the decades, uh, you know, very closely. Uh, and uh, we have heard uh, time and again, uh, you know, promises of abolishing the executive presidency from, a you know, political parties across the spectrum in Sri Lanka. Do you believe that any of these parties is actually serious about abolishing the executive presidency in total? Well,
1: we are going to have to have another presidential, sorry, another general election probably next year. If the P opposition parties don't fight that election on a platform of the abolition of the executive presidency, I think they will face a lot of flack and a lot of electoral adverse electoral consequences if they don't do that. I think, you know, whilst the abolition of the presidency has always been an issue in our politics ever since the 1978 Constitution was promulgated, I think now is a chance where there seems to be popular, uh, an upswell of popular opinion in favor of the abolition
0: of this office. If I remember correctly, you know uh, since uh, the indo sri lanka accord when the 13th amendment to the sri lankan constitution was passed we are we have had uh, what is seven more amendments would that be correct uh, to your constitution yeah now we have the 20th amendment in force correct so uh, uh, president jaywardane uh, you know uh, may probably made sure that uh, your constitution is very difficult if not impossible to amend But do you now see that the political momentum which you were talking about and the possibility of elections next year, will this be enough to sort of propel this change? Because in a sense, looking at it from the outside, I mean, this duality of the power structure in Sri Lanka and the overriding powers of the president, in a sense, actually may make for even, uh, you know, diffused responsibility among the two key players. Well, I think the time has come. But one
1: key thing, is that the protesters need to continue to make this demand and probably have to intensify that demand uh, in terms of the abolition of the presidency, Raj Rajpaksa leaving, and indeed calling for an early general election as soon as possible. But yes, I think the moment is right, but it could be lost if the protesters start dwindling and if the protests disappear. And what is your sense, what will happen to the protests? I think they are not going to. I mean, I think they are fairly determined. You know, there have been various attempts to try and disperse and disband them. But they have resisted. You know, every day we hear of a new protest, or an old protest being swelled by more members of the public and making
0: the very same demand. Dr. Sarut, you've also been a keen South Asia watcher. Uh, You know, we have uh, some sort of reverberations of what's happened in Sri Lanka and Nepal, for instance, you know, where the country has decided to put a curb on all non-essential imports. We have, uh, you know, similar questions being raised in Bangladesh as well, in Pakistan too. So what is the danger of, you know, a crisis, uh, maybe of a different nature and a different sort of, uh, you know, lineage, developing in other South Asian countries?
1: Well, there is always that danger. And, you know, the argument even internationally that democracies are on the back foot and have to defend themselves against autocrats seems to be sort of rather counterfactual because we have a number of cases where the autocrats are on the back foot and having to defend themselves against the protests of the people. I think in every one of our countries, what we have to recognize is, A, for a start, the unity in diversity. We need a constitutional structure that provides space for everyone to be able to function as free and equal citizens and equality before the law and the rule of law. And secondly, we have to look at our financial economic resources and try to, you know, cut our suit according to the cloth that we have rather than spending a huge amounts of money, constantly getting into debt and then having to go to international organizations like the IMF to bail us out, who will impose stringent conditions on us, and that keeps repeating itself. So, yes, there is a danger that this could affect other countries as well.
0: And one other thing which I'm keen to ask you is this, you know, there seems to be uh, something in South Asia or in South Asian countries, including in India, you know, this love for strong men, in a sense, you know, or strong leaders. And we see this in Sri Lanka. We see it even in Pakistan. And we see in India the absolute admiration for Parvez Musharraf earlier when he, you know, staged a coup in Pakistan and was the general and then president leading the country. So what is is this something, uh, you know, in our political approach or is this something that... Uh, is part of our political culture that, you know, South Asians seem to
1: love the strong men? Well, I don't know. I mean, in the Sri Lankan case, certainly we are a sort of semi-feudal society in a lot of respects and we look to top man, as it were, to tell us, or top woman to tell us uh, what to do. Perhaps it's that. I mean, we still have a sort of degree of feudal and colonial mentality that leads us to look for strong men and strong women to be our rulers. But that's why we need to move towards strong institutions and processes, strong institutions and processes of parliamentary democracy, not positions like a strong presidency, etc. We need to move towards strong institutions of parliamentary democracy, and we need to strengthen them so that at the end of the day, it's not a single individual, but you vote into power a team which will constitute a cabinet and you won't sort of put your faith in just one particular individual.
0: Dr. Soti Sarvanamuttu, thank you so much for talking to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for in focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.